And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Kutcher, Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the formerly Hugo Award nominated, but now long neglected, and let's face it, somewhat unloved, Kutcher Podcast! Now, now, Jonathan, awards aren't everything. We have loyal, loving listeners who just uh, are, are, are very generous in, in, in downloading us and listening to us. So, so we don't need to worry about things like that anymore. You tell that to Bob Dylan. Well, uh, okay, that's totally – if we win a Hugo Award, I totally want them to not be able to find us for two weeks <laughs> to tell us about it. No, you don't. So no, you cool. don't because then they'll just keep – they'll say, oh, well, they didn't, re- didn't respond. But the Nobel – you're right. See, the Nobel Prize Committee is probably yeah. Well, once once they've announced that they're stuck, Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize—that's one of the many science fictional things. I keep going back to Charles, the title of Hughes' novel, "How to Live in a How to Live Successfully in a Science Fictional World" or whatever it is. Yeah. And Bob Dylan is <laughs> winning the Nobel Prize. That sounds like something that God knows Rudy Rucker would have made a joke about thirty years ago. I think you're right, uh, uh, but I will say it has been hilarious to see how upset people are by it. There are some people who are really, really bothered. I gather, but one of the points I was making in this discussion has been going on in, in, in discussion lists I've been, and John Clute, who is a very sophisticated uh, Bob Dylan fan, pointed out something which probably needed to be pointed out, and that is, to be perfectly honest, if you look at the body of Bob Dylan's lyrics, which is essentially what he gets the award for, and you look at the body of Robert Frost's poetry, somebody else who won a Nobel Prize, a lot of Frost's poetry is not nearly as incisive and powerful and interesting and original as Bob Dylan's lyrics are. That could be so, true. In other words, pe- people can be outraged at uh, a popular figure getting a Nobel Prize, which is very unusual for the Nobels. However, Again, you go back into the history of the Nobel Prizes, there are a lot of mediocre writers who've gotten them. Well, yes. I mean, I've got a couple of reactions. One of them is I slightly disagree with John, and that is, uh, I know to this point, and maybe if I spoke to him, we would see it the same way. Um, I think the award is actually for the songs as performed by Bob Dylan. I think the performance is part of it because they're not, it's not poetry. They are songs, and songs are sung and performed. Yeah, you're you're not in disagreement with John because one of the things he pointed out was if you take somebody else with a career roughly the same length as as Bob Dylan's, Leonard Cohen, he really began as a poet. He published volumes of poetry. He began writing songs so that he could get his poetry in front of people, And, and Cohen was first and foremost a poet. Uh, and he's an interesting comparison because he doesn't really sing very well either. Uh, but it's a very distinctive style of singing, and it's very powerful, and it's most appropriate for those lyrics. Um, so I, I, I think the, the 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 odds of other writers – I mean the other name that comes up again year after year is Ursula Le Guin. And even though the fact that an American has it for this year and they're, they're kind of parceled out to Americans once every 20 or 30 years – it probably increases the chances of somebody like um, an Ursula Le Guin getting it or um, a Murakami getting it. I actually paid far too much attention to this subject uh, and went off and read a bit about the background of the Nobel and why it's presented and how it's presented. I'm not actually convinced that there's stuff I've not read yet that would explain why it works the way it does. Uh, 
But, of course, we won't know for 50 years uh, how the actual deliberations went down because that's when they uh, they announce it. They're only you know, just releasing the background information for the 1965-66 Nobel. And that's, right. where, that's where you realize in some cases people do come up again and again. What would be hilarious, though you and I will not live to see it, would be to find out that Philip Roth was never discussed. That would be hilarious. That would be very interesting. It would be absolutely hilarious, and, and, and I think you're right. I, but I think also the committee changes from year to year, so you can't really predict that. I, I know that uh, uh, John, Henry, John Henry Holmberg, who's one of the guests of honor of next year's uh, Worldcon in Helsinki and a very distinguished uh, critic and, uh, and, and historian from Sweden, knows people who at least I think know people who are on the committee. And I've heard rumors. I was actually told once by Doris Lessing that she had met a member of the Nobel Committee who told her in no uncertain terms she was never going to get a Nobel Prize after she started writing this space fiction stuff. And so it goes. You know, and life is interesting. Exactly. But it's, it, it, it opens up things in new ways. It just It's another example, though, when I say a science fictional world, it's another example besides the American presidential election, besides Brexit, Besides the possibility that the Cubs are going to the first World Series in 71 years, makes this a science fictional year more than most. More than most. A strange science fictional year. I mean, you, you mentioned the Cubs, and I was, was going to try and throw in some uh, sort of tossed-in comment about sport and science fiction, uh, about the recent death, because we are talking about, well, we are not talking about baseball, of uh, W.P. Kinsella, the author of Shoeless Joe, uh, the source material for the yes. f film Field of Dreams, the great baseball fantasy that I'm aware of, at least. Uh, and there are, a hand there are a handful of strong baseball science fiction stories out there in the world, though I don't think ever a, I don't think there's ever been a science fiction novel about baseball. Um, well, first of all, yes, there has been. Um, but people overlook the fact that the first half of Michael Bishop's brilliant novel brittle innings is set among minor league baseball teams in the south during world war ii i guess there i considered are, that as a, a, a fantasy are, novel but okay it's it's a fan well depends on how you view frankenstein it does the frankenstein creature survives through science fictional means he's taken in by inuits he makes his way down to um to, to the united states and there's there's a reasonable extrapolative um way of thinking that says if, if Frankenstein's creature were to end up in the southern United States with his unusual strength and um, and size, he probably would end up being a baseball player, if not a construction worker. Or some so such thing. I, I, I think there is um, a science fiction. It's, okay, you're right. Fantasy shows up a lot uh, with baseball, more than most other sports. And you get for example, um, a little-known novel, but a very well-known musical based on it, the year the Yankees lost the pennant, which was turned into the musical Damn Yankees, which is one of our classic deal-with-the-devil stories. Yes, and it uh, sur survives even now. There's a local Chicago writer who's very respected, and I'm blanking on his name at the moment, who about 20 years ago wrote a novel in which the Chicago Cubs, in fact, won the World Series. And nuclear war broke out at the bottom of the ninth inning and the world ended because <laughs> that was how likely it seemed to anybody living in Chicago 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and there was recently 
uh, plug for our friend Rick Wilbur's anthology of Fields of course, and yeah. Dreams, which is a collection of uh, some science fiction and some fantasies uh, based around baseball. One of the best of which was by our other good friend, Gardner Dozois, called The Hanging Curve. Yes. Which was simply about a pitcher who throws a hanging curve which just hangs in midair for years after the <laughs> stadium is empty and so forth and so on. And it's a wonderful story. So there have been a lot of that. And there's a footnote to that uh, comment is something you've mentioned not too long ago on Facebook, which is so overlooked that Gardner Dozois has been one of our better but more unsung short story writers of the last three or four decades. Yes, certainly. Uh, and I stories think the like doesn't write enough. Yeah, stories like like Dinner Party and Garden Morning Child and what what you know whatever mm -hmm. are absolutely stunning. Uh, I confess mm -hmm. I've not read his novel Strangers, but the short fiction is wonderful, and he's got a new short story out in the latest issue of FNSF, and has just sold another one to them, and will be coming out a bit later on. Excellent. And in fact, I just got an email from him about a short story. So there you go. There you go. Is I mean, this because liter he's, literally, like, as, I, as, as I say, he literally just emailed me and I've just written back to him about, about a story as we speak. So there you go. I think it's excellent. I think, I think, I think that a Gardner de Zois story should show up at some future Jonathan Strawn anthology. Oh, look, I've, I've <clears> been <throat> nagging Gardner for a decade. Truthfully, I've been nagging oh, him for a decade about it. Um, and I look back very fondly on that crazy collaborative period that Gardner shared with Michael Swanwick and Jack Dan and Susan Casper and others, which was so uh -huh. uh, very prolific and produced some amazing stuff at Omni, which interestingly, see Segway, love the Segway, is about to mm -hmm. relaunch with original fiction next month. Now, we should clarify that because of the various reboots and relaunches and reinventions of Omni, this is one that actually involves some of the original figures involved in Omni. I am going to be horribly simplistic and say there is only one benchmark that counts for us. Ellen Datlow is editing the short fiction for one of the Omni reboots. There are two out there that I know of. One that's basically yeah. some weirdo who bought a bunch of stuff in a storage locker and figured that entitled him to call himself Omni. And then this other real one, which has ties to... Um, I think Guccione's family and everybody else. So that's, that's, and that's online now. And they've been publishing or well, re republishing some of the older stories or, as it's been coming up to news things. But they're about to launch original fiction with Maureen McHugh and Nancy Cress and a couple of other people. All right. Here's a question. Uh, because Omni was, as we've talked about before, one of the most, um, influential magazines of, of the 80s. It, 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 it partly was influential because it had such a high pay rate and it was clearly um, attractive to anybody who, who it, it was the top market you would send to. Omni and Playboy were the top market you would send to. Um, but it was also, when Omni went online, one of the few major respectable, well-funded online venues for fiction. With as many good online venues as we have now, is there there's clearly a place for the new Omni. Is there as much a need for the new Omni? Is it a possibility that it could be as influential as it once was? Those are all interesting questions, and we probably need to clarify a few points. My recollection is that Omni never published much original fiction online. 
they did do a very, very high-profile launch funded by Chrysler, I think it was, uh, where they really? paid, paid a whole pile of money for uh, stories back in the mid-90s. And then, um, and I, I may be misremembering, but then Ellen Datler went on to edit Event Horizon, which looked as though it was related, yes. but I think it was a separate thing. And then she went on to re- edit short fiction online for uh, sci-fi.com, I think it was, maybe. Right. Uh, which makes it looks as though she's been editing consistently, or Omni has had some online kind of a component. But I think it really kind of predated that and was largely disappearing from the world. Now, to get to your more important question, what kind of a role can it play? Is there a current equivalent? Mm-hmm. Probably the best equivalent right now would be Tor.com. Tor.com is not exactly yeah. equivalent because it publishes a lot more fiction than Omni ever did, which means yes. that you know you got to find more more material, and it has a whole bunch of different editors, so there's no single editorial tone to it. So there's that. Can Omni possibly regain the position it had, that kind of influence? I think it's unlikely. I think it can be valuable. I think it can be worthwhile. I think it can publish great fiction. That goes without, without saying. Ellen's a very perceptive editor, uh-huh. and if they're funding, that can absolutely work. However, the world has genuinely moved on from having a single viewpoint spot or a single top market in the field the way it used to. So, you know, I think the reason that it's unlikely that Omni, or anybody else, it's not Omni per se, could take the incredible yeah. position that that you know Omni used to have back in the in the eight, the nineties is largely because there are too many other competitive markets and you're not going to get enough eyeballs up above everybody else. I mean, Omni's strength was twofold, you know, because it sat on top of the Guccione publishing empire. It paid the most yeah. money for stories, but it also had the largest print right. run of anything by overwhelmingly a huge margin. And that's what you can't guarantee that you're going to get but one of the- much more traffic. It's, it's true, and, and and one of the other advantages to the to the print omni at least, although you have, I think you were the one that told me that uh, despite its massive circulation compared to the science fiction magazines, there was not a lot of evidence that the people who bought omni for the science articles actually read the fiction. I heard nevertheless an it yeah. ex- mm-hmm. okay, go ahead. I heard an anecdotal story just to interject. Sorry, uh, that there was a survey done that showed that something like one in a hundred, one, one in a hundred people or five in a hundred people or something ever read any of the short fiction, but they wouldn't keep buying the magazine if it wasn't there. Anyway, well, you're saying. At, at that circulation, five or 10% of the readership makes a huge difference. I remember talking once um, to Alice Turner at Playboy, who was probably during that period the only person who knew about science fiction and understood it well, who actually had more power than anybody, simply because Playboy, I think, had even better rates than Omni, and they published relatively little science fiction, but the point is, the science fiction they published got read by a much larger percentage of people than, or at least it got exposure to a much larger group of people. So, uh, that you get, go back to 1959, for example, I think it was 1959, probably it was earlier than that, 1957 maybe, um, one of the early stories they published by a writer not even known today, George Langalon, was The Fly, which became two very successful movies. One of the most famous unread science fiction short stories of all time. Earlier, Playboy had published Ray Bradbury. Um, the 
one of the iterations of Fahrenheit 451. So the argument I would make is that uh, what Omni and Playboy and to some extent no other magazine at all did in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s was to actually buy genre science fiction, buy writers who were, knew they were writing genre science fiction, and present that to a much broader audience than it would otherwise get. And, and Alice Turner, for her part, uh, who was very knowledgeable, uh, was very conscious of doing that. She had a mission. Uh, when she edited the Playboy book of science fiction, she wanted that book, that anthology, to be read by people who read Playboy and not just people who read science fiction. I can't. And it was think, a good anthology. I can't think of an immediate similar project that exists today that reaches out in that way. However, it is such a different time that I don't know that it's necessary. You know, science fiction. It may not be. I mean, hmm. the, the, the one that comes to my mind is nature. Now, they're publishing very short stories by a lot of major writers over a period of years, some of which get anthologized, some of which I think you may have put in year's best anthologies. No, I've never collected But those any. are – okay, um, I've seen them in other years best. David Hartwell used to put them in his years best anthologies. But that's not really it. Those stories were not really exposing these writers to the reader of nature. They were the readers of nature. They were exposing science fictional ideas. It was kind of a, a, a lark on the part of nature. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think there's nothing today – and Omni is an extreme example. But Omni was not a science fiction magazine. Playboy was not a science fiction magazine. I don't think there's a big mainstream venue that will publish the occasional science fiction story the way those magazines did, or before that, the way Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post and the Atlantic and Harper's would occasionally publish a science fiction story. Well, that, that's true, even though I would say that the era that Harper's was doing that kind of thing was the same era, I think, that the golden age of magazines was generally happening. So you had very high, very high circulation yeah. magazines in existence anyway. There are places that publish occasional pieces of, of science fiction, odd places. I mean, Slate has published science fiction. Um, the New Yorker has published science fiction. Um, it, it pops up occasionally, but there's nowhere that has a regular commitment to it. The slicks, you know, sort of Playboy, Penthouse, and then Omni as an offshoot of that. Uh, they had a regular ongoing commitment to presenting it to that broader audience. And I, I honestly don't know that right. I see that returning. I mean, but then, as I say, we live in an era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We live in an era of Netflix. And we live in an era of Tor.com and places like that. It, it, there are different ways of getting to readers. I don't think it's easier, but I, I think, think it's true. Ways. But it also means the market's never as dominant. Well, you know, there's, I, I think it'll be a while before you see a single market as dominant as... Omni used to be. And what's more, I, I wonder if you I, could I, have I, a, a market that exists today that could get away with publishing 12 to 20 stories a year. Probably not. And you, I think you're probably right that Tor at this point is the most influential market out there. Um, and it's one of the things that uh, it, it's good news and bad news. The general interest magazine, the slick magazine that publishes a bit of fiction, um, they're gone. They're, they're, they're not there anymore. The New Yorker will publish some science fiction, and they published a few Le Guin stories. They published at least one Gene Wolfe story. Uh, they publish stories by people who are not necessarily associated with science fiction, but they're science fictional stories, uh, like Juno Diaz or, or Jonathan Lethem. Uh, 
the good news, I suppose, in that is that while all the markets available for science fiction, this goes back to something I was in a meeting at my university yesterday, and one of the creative writing professors was there. And the number of markets available for science fiction and fantasy uh, that are actual markets, by which I mean publications that are read by more than 100 readers, is probably healthier than the market for general mainstream short fiction these days. I, I have no way of testing that, but that sounds plausible to me, yes. I mean, there are many, many markets for short fiction, but they are tiny, tiny markets. Yes. They are not as big and as widely read as Tor.com or, or, or Strange Horizons or Clark's World or Beyond Seatless uh, Skies. Uh, th those, are, those, are those would be huge markets by the standards of most mainstream short fiction markets today. True. Which is a way of simply saying that you could make an argument despite what we were early, earlier saying about the lack of an Omni, the lack of a Playboy, the lack of a Colliers, whatever, you could make an argument that this is a kind of golden age for science fiction and fantasy, short fiction publishing. Don't say golden age. Never say golden age. That's terrible. I hate golden ages. No. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Do I think it's a it's golden age? No, no, I don't think. There, there, there are too many idiosyncratic characteristics of the time that prevent it being a golden age. And, you know... It seems that every five years, if things look nice, we, we, we discuss it as being a golden age. I think we're in a fascinating period, and I'm going to be really interested to see what happens in the next five to ten years, because the entire history, the, the entire story of the short fiction publishing market for the last decade mm -hmm. has been atomization. More and more and more markets many of them small, many of them niche, many of them going to a particularly target audience. Right. Even if they're more than 100 people, and maybe quite often not any more than 100 people. Um, and whether you will see a recoalescence, a reforming into some larger publications again, as both viability tests them because, you know, the, the, the cost of running. And also, I think, as the perspective mm -hmm. on things changes. I mean, we've had this great discussion uh, which still needs a lot more action, but a, a discussion about diversity and whatever else. And the thing about what's happened in science fiction about diversity has been bespoke, localized, atomized markets. Now it's to bring that, to see whether that all comes back together again. That's what I've been waiting to see. And you know, to some degree, you see a bit of that in Tor.com, but you know, we're waiting to see it elsewhere as well. I don't think it's going. Uh, I don't know. It's going to consolidate. I don't. I don't see any consolidation of markets. And I think the atomization of markets is not a bad thing, and this is something I say, and, and, and you can cover your ears because I'm going to give you a compliment. At this point. One of the reasons we have things like Year's Best Anthologies is because there's a huge amount of stuff out there. You uh, and Gardner and Rich and the other editors of these anthologies and Paula and Dellen and so forth are, are, are going after some of the more atomized venues. You're finding stories from sources that most of us wouldn't see. My impression, reading mostly these anthologies, original anthologies and reprint anthologies and year's best anthologies is that there is generally a higher there, there there's okay let me put it this way at least maybe not a higher proportion of really good short fiction out there but if somebody's willing to look for it a possible raw number of more good stories out there per year than there might have been in what we think of golden ages of short fiction publishing such as okay. the 80s or the 50s or I can sort of see that. I mean, I do think that if we're going to talk about 
coalescing or not coalescing. I think there are forces that will drive it to to drive markets to come together again, or for or for larger markets to evolve and dominate, and smaller markets to fall away. And that's the two driving forces for writers who write short fiction. They want to get paid, and they want mm -hmm. to find they want to find readers. And it's, right. it gets harder and harder for small outfits to pay for short fiction. Writers pitch their work to larger audience, to, to larger places that can pay. The larger places that can pay also then attract more readers. It, it is a count. It is a right. a, a counter way, you know, pattern of events that, could, that, that may unfold. I mean, I might be wrong, but I, I think you could see it. I mean, one of the questions that has been on my mind in the last month or two or three, somewhere in the background has been this idea of whether there, there's still a big three or four um, short fiction publishing outlets in the field. And there are various reasons mm -hmm. why I need to look at that question. But my feeling is right now there isn't. I don't believe that that, that you know, the old three, Asimov's Analog, FNSF, dominate the way they used to. Uh, I'm not sure that the new three, Tor, Lightspeed, Clark's World, dominate in the same way that the old big three used to and obviously they overlap anyway to form a new trio or quartet but i don't know that that even has the same place so you know no but there's a lot of short fiction i mean look just today i, I stumbled across the fact that for the first time in 10 years poppy z bright has published new fiction really yep there's a new short story on uh amazon that you can buy as a single ebook file if you go searching, the title slips my mind right now, but it's out there. It's the first thing that's come out yeah, in 10 years. So um, there are many, many nooks and crannies, Gary, in which short fiction can, can, can disappear. There may be, does that suggest, though, that, that short fiction is attractive to writers who might have moved away from it? Uh, I know, uh, for example, uh, well, our friend Peter Straub, for example, has a piece in, in, in the conjunctions coming up, which is short fiction partly because he can be in conjunctions. He can get respect for it. He gets a, a set of literary readers that he uh, that he enjoys. Uh, other writers like uh, – in other words, having a plurality of markets, it seems to me, only encourages people to, to write more short fiction because of the possibility of reaching their own readers. Um, that's true, but I mean, and that's yeah, an easier yeah, decision yeah. to make for Peter because he already has a large established audience. When you have people trying to establish an audience, that's a different thing. My theory of most writers is that even with well-established audiences, even with people that absolutely love your fiction, most writers want to find new readers. They want to find people who haven't discovered them. I'm, And I've talked to a number of writers about this, uh, and, and, and without... I can't quote them directly, but the impression I get is that even somebody who has most of the readers in the field, uh, a Ted Chang, for example, everybody wants to see the new Ted Chang story because it's a Ted Chang story. I know that Ted appreciates that, but he also wants people to read Ted Chang stories who haven't read Ted Chang stories, which, by the way, is probably going to happen after Arrival hits theaters next week or so. That may well be true. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation with author to be named later. And okay. you know, author to be named later basically said to me that they only wrote short fiction now for one of three or four reasons, because they're well established as a very successful novelist. They wrote it because they're offered buttloads of money. They offered it because mm -hmm. it exposed them to a new market. 
they offered it them mm-hmm. to them because it seemed, or they, they wrote it because it seemed fun at the time, right? So if it was novel or different, so they just do it for enjoyment and, and wrote it off against money. And I've seen John Scalzi, who is not this author, you, you know, mention that as, as mm-hmm. a reason. Or, and this is a, was a big thing. It was if, in many ways a dominant thing. If it got me to a new audience and I could see someone saying, well, hey, look, Slate or, um, Wired or, New Yorker or whoever has asked me to write. Sure, I'll write a story for them for some of their, one of their projects because it'll get me in front of different, you know, different readers. And I think that's a really important thing that writers are aware of and does have an impact on when they're willing to write short fiction. I think it's true. And I, I think it works both ways. I mean, it's, it's true. Every writer, um, of, of any genre would like to get a story in the New Yorker. You want the New Yorker readers reading you. Uh, when I say it works the other way, you take a writer who has perfectly fine MFA lit crit credentials like Brian Evanson wants to reach a science fiction and fantasy readership. He wants those people to read him. Uh, Juno Diaz wants to get – he hasn't really done much to, to attract the attention, but, but, but there, it, it's kind of an odd thing. You have a lot of uh, literary mainstream writers who would like the kind of enthusiasm that science fiction and fantasy writers get from their readers. And, of course, you have science fiction and fantasy writers who want the kind of respectful attention that you get from a New Yorker audience, for example. Uh, so I, I think every, every writer probably wants to reach more uh, readers, but who those readers are depends on who the writer is. I think that's true. Um, look, I mean, you can also understand very much why a writer wouldn't want to keep, keep doing the thing that they're known for. I mean, I think you would have to twist... Stan Robinson's arm very hard to get him to write, say, a new Mars story. I would imagine okay. that Paolo Bacigalupi doesn't have an enormous interest in writing another grim climate change kind of story. Uh, so, you know, you can see why throwing out... It's like, well, okay, great. I mean, Paolo's a fantastic example. I mean, because look at how he wrote this, uh, wrote that octopus story, Moriabi's Children, that I think is fabulous, that ended up in one of uh, yeah. Kelly Link and Gavin Grant's young adult anthologies. You know, that was and as far away from the to, traditional yeah. Paolo story as you could get. Yeah. A new thing, novel, new readers, and you know, something that would help him grow his, grow his readership, if you like, which I, I can respect and understand. I don't know. Look, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Um, well, Paolo raises an interesting question. Oh, go ahead and No, no, what you say? No, my, my thoughts... I was no. going to make a totally different segue. Uh, since since this this is one of our segue rich podcasts, you have no idea where the next topic is going to come from. Paolo, I think, was worried about being typecast as the grim environmental guy, um, and that I think is another slightly different um, attitude among writers today, among compared to writers of fifty years ago. As far as I could tell, I only met the gentleman once, uh, and he was very courtly and polite. Cal Clement was perfectly happy being essentially typecast as Hal Clement, the guy who thinks up really creative kinds of aliens and and works out their environments and so forth and so on. So today, I don't think very many writers would enjoy that. I think think there are some writers uh, in allied genres. Uh, I think Harry Turtledove is perfectly happy going on and on writing Harry Turtle of alternate histories because he's figured out a way to do it. There's an inventiveness to them. But I think that when you get 
uh, no, a Paolo Bacigalupi does not want to be the environmental guy. Stan Robinson no longer wants to be the Mars guy. Uh, I don't think that... Um, I don't even think that Kelly Link wants to be the not clearly plotted but very evocative sort of uh, literary uh, inventive person. I think she wants to write more plotted stories than she has in the past. I think everybody wants to write something that their own readers aren't expecting. And I think that's a healthy sign. Looking to grow and evolve as as writers, which you would expect would be, as you say, healthy. I also suspect that these things are never as simple as they look from afar. And that if you were to go to someone who you felt was typecast, I mean, here's an example for someone who I respect a great deal, C.J. Cherry. C.J. Cherry's 16 novels or some darn thing into one long series. Mm -hmm. And you could argue is somewhat typecast as writing uh, anthropological, sociological science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I wonder if you were to talk to her, and we should talk to her, um, if you'd find that she feels she has managed to express herself across a far broader spectrum than it appears from from a distance. I think that's true. I think I think there's a difference between the aspects of a novel that that characterize its market or that satisfy a readership. You're probably hearing sirens going on outside, which is actually an emergency. It does not mean the Cubs have one dependent yet. Um, one of the things I learned, because I don't know her work that well, but I read Edward James's excellent book on um, Lois McMaster Bujold, and it became clear that while Bujold knew how to appeal to her core audience and give them what was very satisfying to them in terms of the Miles Brokosigan ongoing saga, there are novels within that series that are romances. There are novels that are hard science fiction. There are novels that are social science fiction. There are feminist novels. In other words, she clearly felt that she could do a huge variety of things as a writer while maintaining the kind of uh, expectations that her readers have from her series. And I think the same thing may be true of Cherry. Yeah. Look, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's true because it's certainly very true that there is an enormous variety of style, theme, approach in Bujold's work. And I have to say that mm. if you step outside of the Foreigner series, which has dominated the last decade and a half in Cherry's writing, yeah. there is that a, a, a huge variety of work in the 60-something novels she's published. You know, because there's, there's an enormous volume of work, whether they be the Celtic-influenced fantasies, whether they be science, you know, swords and sorcery science fantasies, whether they be hard science fiction spaceship-bound epics. And yet, you know, there are obviously common underlying themes as well. But, I mean, I think she has, she has a, a, a reasonable spectrum of things that she can do and because she has, I guess, a loyal audience or follower anywhere now, which I suppose is the holy grail for a lot of writers. I, I, what I'm saying is I think these writers and other writers who are doing similar things are, are adventurous. They have what amount to franchise, but a franchise is not necessarily a formula. It's not necessarily something that you return to uh, – just to pick up uh, 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 another publication or just to satisfy your <clears throat> readers. I mean, there, there are many such franchises, and some of them have more variety of styles in them than others. Uh, Larry Niven has some terrific stories in the Known Space series, but largely, if you look at a gun- bunch of those stories together, which I did several years ago, um, they're Larry Niven stories. They're, they're delivering on the hard SF 
high concept, frankly, low character development, um, idea-driven fiction that he was very, very good at. Uh, he was not interested in using known space to do literary experiments. A contrast, a good friend of his, is Greg Benford, who did use his Galactic Center series to draw on storytelling traditions from Faulkner to, to Fitzgerald and, and do a little bit more experimentation with, with, with character and that sort of thing. So my point is that having a, a, a characteristic franchise, having something that your readers will want, uh, novel after novel, doesn't necessarily constrain you from writing in different genres or in different styles or with different themes. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, as, as I guess will be evidenced next week, I mean, I feel like fantasy is particularly, it's true, particularly true in fantasy, or I can think of a lot of examples in fantasy. And of course, next mm -hmm. week, in fact, in, well, from where I am, four days away now, you will be returning to the scene of the crime. You will be returning to World Fantasy Convention in Columbus, Ohio, for the first time in six years. Uh, when you were, the last time uh, I think we went there, you were a uh, World Fantasy Award judge. I was a judge and you were a winner. Uh, that was uh, a very interesting, as I recall, Gene Wolfe got a World Fantasy Award that year. Um, it was a very satisfying award. We all discovered how wonderful the ice cream shops are. There's your World Fantasy Award, which our listeners cannot understand what I'm talking about, but on the video screen I'm looking at. There is one of the Howies, and as it turns out, that's one of the last 30 or 40 Howies, Howies ever to be awarded. Yes. So you should hold on to it. Well, I would hold on to it but anyway. It is. Uh, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to World Fantasy. There were some problems. Uh, some people that we know and like have done, uh, I think, sincere and respectable jobs of making the program a little bit more diverse than it had first appeared. Uh, a lot of friends will be there, and there will be a lot of good discussions. I have no idea. Uh, I've not even tried to handicap this year's World Fantasy Awards. I, I uh, haven't either. I mean, partly because I've, I've lost the time to read a lot of novels in the last while, as you know, and that slows me down. Uh -huh. I will say in the short fiction categories there are some spectacular candidates, and I have no idea what's going to win. I mean, personally, in the long fiction category – Two of my very favorite stories of the year are up. Uh, Usman Malik's The Pauper Prince and the Eucalyptus Jinn. And we have mm -hmm. to have Usman on the podcast. Uh, all new friend of the podcast, Kelly Robson, is up for her wonderful novella, Waters of Versailles. Uh, and I'd be delighted to see mm -hmm. either of those stories win honestly. Though uh, the other nominees, uh, Kelly Barnhill, Kim Newman, and Bud Webster, all have fine stories that are up. And in the short fiction category... I have great, great affection for the stories by Sam Miller, Tamsin Muir, and Alyssa Wong. Uh, I do wonder if, given the well, Alyssa's success elsewhere, if it might be the story of the moment uh, and the, the more likely winner. But a lot of worthy winners. Well, I mean, excuse me. What was the story of the moment? Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong. That seems to be a very popular story this year. It'll be very interesting to see how that. Uh, Look, it's it's, it's, a, it's a powerful it's a piece. It's a very powerful story. It is. But you know, we have all sorts uh, of friends up actually to the podcast. In fact, I'm going to take a moment. I hadn't planned this, but since I have this in front of me now, and shout out to a couple of the friends of the podcast and wish them luck for next Sunday. Because that sounds like an excellent because, idea. Because you know, diff you know, be being you know perverse, it'll be on the Sunday. 
in Columbus, in the ballroom. I remember it well. The steps onto the stage weren't that stable. Um, uh-huh. In fact, didn't – who helped you give out the awards when you were there? Did anyone give you a hand? I was – no, no, no. I was not giving out the awards in Columbus. Oh, no, no. You did that later I on. Was giving, right. I was giving out the awards in Toronto. Ah, it all blurs. But, okay, so in Special Award Non-Professional, Friends of the podcast, Alexandra Pierce and Alyssa Krasnerstein, are up for their book, Letters to Tip Tree. So a shout out to them. In Special Excellent. Awards Professional, yeah. Friends of the podcast, Neil Gaiman, you'll remember him, uh, and Joe Monty are up for the, in that category. In Best Artist, Friend of the podcast, Kathleen Jennings is up. So good luck to her. Mm-hmm. In Collection, Mary Rickert, Jim Morrow, and Kelly Link are all up. And the best of luck to all of them, but also to the other other nominees. And you know, one person we need to talk to, Gary, uh, CSE Cooney. We, sh- we need to talk to her. She's going to be at uh, World Fantasy. Need to talk to her. Oh, maybe we should try to do that. We need to. I will, as I've mentioned before, we started talking. I have a couple of evenings when we can try to yep. round up people and, uh, and 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 chat with people. That and was- there are people apparently. Um, uh, it, it's it, one of the things that fascinates me about world fa- world fantasy is that um, unlike Worldcon, Worldcon uh, for science fiction, you pretty much expect almost everybody to be there because it's huge. World fantasy changes from year to year. People show up that you haven't seen in years. People show up you haven't met yet. Uh, there's, there's kind of a core of people, but it's, it's smaller and more select. So, so I, I hope that we can get a chance to talk to some of the um, people who are there and some of our friends of the podcast, as you say, and some of our future friends of the podcast. Well, that's it. I mean, obviously, but good, good uh, luck to everybody. But, you know, if you happen to be someone we actually know, obviously, we're vastly biased in your favor. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and, I, 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 and should then after, I should finish just quickly because there's two or three more and it would be, net, you know, be omitting them. Okay. Yeah, go through the So, yeah, so just quickly, good luck to also to Sylvia, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia and to Ellen Datlow. Datlow's up for her, mm-hmm. book, her book, The Doll Collection. Uh, and also to um, uh, Tom Holm, uh, who's up as KJ Parker for Savages. So, yeah, I think that's all the ones who are like friends of the podcast. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. It's, it's, it's by and large a pretty good uh, list of nominees. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the The other reason I look forward to World Fantasy, um, for whatever problems it has from year to year, it's the end of the season. We've talked about the convention yeah. season, which oh, begins for me in March, and and it's and, and and now I'm going to settle into a cold winter in Chicago, which will be a hot summer for you in Perth, and not going, not go to another convention for five months probably, unless I go to a small convention somewhere in the Midwest here. Um, and in a sense, that feels like a reprieve. Uh, it, it it feels like. To not worry about things like who's been nominated for awards, who's up for awards, who's likely to win awards, uh, whether a convention is well organized or not. It, it, it seems to me that in the last four or five years, and this may largely be a result of the puppies, and that convention going has become more stressful than it used to be. Maybe. Uh, there are maybe. more things to worry about. There are. Maybe. I, 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 I haven't. 
stressful. No, I haven't noticed that, I must admit. But I think that that's obviously a, a, a personal thing. I mean, certainly the way people regard the awards <laughs> has changed. I mean, the combination of the controversies that were surrounding the World Fantasy Award and now the controversies that have been plaguing the Hugos for some years have changed the atmosphere around a little bit. But I think the thing that's think unfortunate that, about that yeah. is that potentially draws away from the nominees. And the one thing that we shouldn't lose track of is that there's nothing that's changed with the World Fantasy Awards themselves. The Hugos have had issues and they're attempting to address them. But this ballot is as good and as you know, a ballot you know, as you could want. And there are some of the very, you know, the very best novels of the year are up. I mean, we always could quibble mm-hmm. about selections because that's what awards are actually for. So we can sit there and quibble with them. But, you know, I mean, Nora Jemison's The Fifth Season has been widely lauded. Uh, Naomi Novik's Uprooted is terrific. Anna Small's The Chimes. Yeah. Paul Tremblay's A Head Full of Ghosts I've been hearing about over and over and over again in the last four months as a major book of the year. And, of course, Ishigura's The Buried Giant. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff. And it should, should be an interesting weekend. And hopefully you will have a great weekend. I, you know, as I say, will be staying here at home and working away and not enjoying the convention. And I'm, I'm maybe I'm going to start a maybe I'll start a I Kickstarter, agree. Gary. I need a Kickstarter. Uh, now you might say I just need a kicking, and well, that yes, would be fair. But no, you see, I'm trying to work out how I can go to Worldcon, and all of a sudden, how I can go to World Fantasy next year as well, um, because obviously Worldcon should, is the big thing. But I'd like to do both. Well, you you should be um, certainly should have World Fantasy next year in your sights because. They seem to be very efficient in organizing. They have two progress reports already for World Fantasy in 2017. And it looks to me to be, so far, an extraordinarily well-organized convention. It does look good. I mean, I love the choice of guests. The, I've, not, I've never been to San Antonio, so I'd love to go to San Antonio. Um, it's certainly an accessible place for a variety of reasons. Uh, I feel uh-huh. that slight pang at not making it to Columbus. Uh I'm aware that I will miss some people who I only ever see at World Fantasy, and I'm loath to let too many years pass by on that score, you know, because, you know, otherwise it'll be Baltimore before I get back to World Fantasy in 2018. And so that's I'd, true. I would like to get back next year, but we, we will see. That That's a personal thing and not of much interest to, to the listeners. Um, probably, I mean, we're getting... Well, I will say one thing about parentheses in San Antonio. You You should come to San Antonio because... Living in Perth as you do, you would be one of less than 10% of the attendees who would not find San Antonio unbearably hot and humid. It'd be October. What? It's, it, it's not going to be hot it, and humid it, it, in San Antonio in October, is it, Gary? Um, it was – well, okay, I was, there, I was there for the Worldcon in August. But in October, it's a very southerly state. Yes, it could be very hot and humid. Yeah. No, I don't want to go now. You put me off. Oh no, no, it's it's fine. It's a, the 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 river walk is delightful. It, you'll enjoy it. You get to see the it, the whole. If it's in anywhere close to the hotel that the Worldcon was in, you can walk to the Alamo. Um, Look, maybe I'll buy a membership and just see how it goes. Alamo. But it'll come down to time and money. Anyway, I mean, it, it's uh, it's great not to be going. Well, it, as I've said before, it's good not to be going because of work. We are blathering now. No, not even rambling. Um, we're blathering. Me, we probably used up our. Oh. We almost used up the time. We've got about five or ten minutes to go. We 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 can wind okay. up early. We are free to, free to. Let me ask you just quickly: Have you read anything of any outstanding merit this week? Um. 
One of the things I'm looking at uh, this week, I mean, I, I will say this because I haven't finished writing the review, but there are some terrific short stories in Bridging Infinity, but I know you don't want me to go on to that for too much just yet. Um, there is a novel, who the, the first novel I only glanced at because it was a candidate for the Crawford Award and then was basically disqualified because it's science fiction by a Finnish writer named Emma, I'm thinking, I'm, I hope I'm saying it right, Inaratu, uh, called The Weaver, which was published in England as City of Woven Streets and published in Finland with a Finnish title. And it's a very interesting original kind of concept in um, uh, an alternate worlds. And it's, it's becoming more and more, not alternate worlds, fantasy worlds, world building. It's becoming more and more challenging to come up with any kind of an original fantasy world, it seems. Um, and this one is built around what are basically medieval craft skills, and it's very interesting. Um, the other one, which I've mentioned without recalling the name um, for the last two podcasts, is another novel uh, from a very small press, whose name I don't remember, um, by Nava Simel, a well-known, well-respected literary uh, writer in Israel, uh, called Israel, which is kind of clearly a pun on Israel. Two words, I-S-R-A, and the second word is Isle. And it's one of these interesting alternate fantasies like the one we've mentioned before with um, uh, oh, the um, okay, now, why am I blanking on um, the novel by Nisi Shaw called Everfair. Everfair, yeah, yeah. Everfair, where she, she took an obscure bit of uh, African history. It turns out that in the 1820s, uh, a, a Jewish playwright and, and diplomat from New York bought an island downstream from Niagara Falls and decided he was going to make a homeland for the Jews out of it. Wow. So the novel, it's it, it, this, this actually happened. Absolutely nobody paid any attention to this guy whatsoever. It was an utter failure. Not a single Jew ever set foot on Grand Isle, which really exists. It's apparently a suburb of Buffalo, New York. Um, and what's interesting about this is, is that she is obviously doing something which is comparable in some ways to Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Policeman's yes, Union, course, yeah. that is looking at an early iteration, an unrealized iteration of a Jewish homeland. What she does, which is original, and I think uh, I, I'm very skeptical of mainstream writers doing alternate history because Philip Roth even though he wrote a pretty good novel, completely felt that he had invented the genre when he clearly hadn't. What she does is interesting. The first chapter is a contemporary story, the first section, set in our world, and it's essentially a mystery. Somebody who is, claims to be the heir to this island shows up in New York and disappears, and the detective is sent out after him, and it involves 911 and all sorts of things. The second part goes back and creates a kind of historical narrative in 1825. It's not a fantastic narrative, but we're not sure because it's history, whether it's alternate history or well-researched historical fiction. And then the third part is back in 2001, but it's an alternate 2001 in which this Jewish utopia has been built. What interests me about it is that it's three genres in one book, but it's also very clever in the way it constructs the historical fiction because you don't know whether the historical chapter is a prelude to our own history or a prelude to the history that she presents in the third part. So here's somebody coming out of the mainstream who, as far as I can tell, has essentially thought of something new to do with alternate 
history fiction. Which is interesting. Uh, because, you know, I mean, alternate history has been so knocked around that really you wonder what else there is to do. But then, you know, this is also the year we've got the Colson Whitehead book, you know, the Underground, Underground Railway. Exactly. And this, this is the year, this, this is what I was thinking. I've not read the Colson Whitehead book because Colson Whitehead is another mainstream writer who has clearly expressed his interest in writing genre fiction before. And now he's written a mainstream novel, very well respected mainstream novel, which uses aspects of alternate history without moving fully into alternate history. The Underground Railway, as I understand this novel, is literally an underground railway. Apparently so, uh, yeah. So, so this may be the same. We talked before about how time travel has moved into the mainstream. Um, maybe with things like Audrey Niffenegger's time, time Traveler's Wife. Um, and now maybe it's time for alternate history to become a, a trope of mainstream fiction, something you can do uh, just as a literary technique. Well, well, possibly so. Certainly the challenge for time travel fiction right now is to come up with a, a new idea. I mean, certainly it's mainstreamed uh, and has been more and more mainstreamed over time. And when you get, I think, three major North American television series on the air at the same time, all turning on time travel yeah. as their central uh, mechanism, that tells you just how mainstream it's become, but also highlights the problem because they're all turning on exactly the same problem, which kind of makes it a little bit sort of interesting. But, you know, yeah, it, it, it's, it's good to see different things done. I mean, the Carlson Whitehead is fascinating because a lot of people seem to be confused as to whether it's actually alternate history or not, or secret history, or when actually it's... It is alternate history. I mean, the, the stuff that's in the book... Uh, dances around things that did happen has a lot a core that was, was was plainly you know fictional so but it sounds that sounds fascinating well i, I think what, well, one of the things he's pointing out is something that the other writers have pointed out in the past um uh, I, I know chip delaney has said this at some point that <coughs> historical fiction is by by definition alternate history by definition you're going to create events and create characters that that didn't exist in the the question is how far do you diverge from the historical record in doing that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, look, it's gonna be interesting. And that's the question. Yeah. I was gonna say as well, I've just read it's been, yeah, sorry, fascinating. Yeah. I, I, yeah, what do you say? Go ahead. No, you finished. I was just gonna say that I've just read a piece by Stephen Baxter that relates to his forthcoming novel, The Massacre of Mankind, which of course is another play on different kinds of fictional game playing, in this case, sequels by other hands, where he's writing a sequel to The War of the Worlds. Now, that's on one hand nothing at all like a secret history or an altered history or a time travel story, oh. other than the fact that it is such a such a thing for genre fiction to do. I think genre fiction does it more than other genres, but I think other genres are beginning to play with it more, too. So... Um, I mean, Stephen Baxter is somebody who has very openly played with the idea of mixing historical fiction and science fiction in his Roman history series. Um, so I, I, I think that to some extent literary experimentation is moving in the direction of literary tropes from genre writers and is moving in the direction of genre tropes being used by literary writers. And I don't think that this means that these are ever going to merge, but I think it does mean that uh, you're right. Uh, somebody like Stephen Baxter can uh, can use the resources of various genres in writing sequels to Wells. I mean, he did it to the Tiny Machine already, and uh, his 
version of the time machine, from a science fictional point of view, was far more complicated and fully developed than H.G. Wells' original novel ever was. True. So you might have something similar in mind here. It's entirely true. Well, you know, look, Gary, I think we're going to wind up just a little bit early today. I mean, you've got a, a trip to pack for. When do you fly off to sunny Columbus, or are you driving over? Flying off uh, to it is now Friday night for me on Wednesday. I'll be flying. I'll be having dinner with friends, seeing some old friends. And with any luck, we'll be able to do a podcast or at least record parts of a podcast uh, with friends in Columbus. Yes. And I'm hoping you'll stock up on other episodes because we've got a hiatus coming up, Gary. We've got to fill the hiatus. We do have our, we have, we have our end-of-the-year hiatus coming. That's true. Okay. Well, until I talk to you next week, I hope you have a wonderful convention. And I hope you raise a glass for Cood Street. And I'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. Talk to you next week.